welcome to episode number two of Monetizing Knowledge, the podcast. I'm Mel Telesekin, I'm your host, and today I'm interviewing a gentleman by the name of Simon Knapp. Simon's the co-founder and CEO of a business or a company called Pixmoto. And a little bit about Simon to give you some context is that he is a passionate retailer, he's a digital enthusiast and a data lover. And before you switch off, if you're a non-retailer, I encourage you to listen to this episode because we talk about the importance of video marketing as a tool for storytelling as well as sales and the importance of being able to link all of these things up for a measurable return on investment. So Simon is very much about innovation and making things financially effective through technology and other applications, a variety of applications. So he's really worth tuning into. We talk about analytic performance of experiences, so um, tracking where people are, what devices they're on, why that's important, and what the ingredients are that um, mean that you'll get a return on investment for anything in terms of video marketing. But interestingly, it's about their product, what Pixmoto does, how it does it. And while they're applying it in the e-commerce space, There is so much room for this to be applied in a variety of other industries. I urge you to tune in to listen. This is food for thought stuff, right? Because as we know, e-commerce and online retail is the very first space where people make big leaps and bounds in these sort of technologies. And so eventually it sort of filters out to other technologies that are slower to adopt. So it's really important to keep your head above the game and be getting this sort of insight now. Let that steep, let that uh, process, and then you can find ways to apply it in your business. So as I said, Simon, fantastic, fascinating man. Uh, You'll hear all about how he makes that product work, who he uses it with uh, in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get stuck into it. Brisbane today live face to face at a place called River City Labs. So if you do hear a little bit of background noise, you just know that there's a bunch of productive people in the background. We've got a we've got a boardroom. Good to have you with me, Simon. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Mel. Great to be here. Now, I wanted to start off with just explaining straight up. Can you tell everyone what is Pixmodo? Sure. And how do you help people monetize knowledge? Sure. Um, look, at the heart of it, it's quite quite a simple proposition. Pixmodo connects the e-commerce channel to digital video so that customers can buy products while they're watching the video online. Um, how do we monetize knowledge? Oh, look, again, I suppose it's the heart of it is is videos, one, I think, one of the best way to tell stories. And in stories, there's lots of knowledge that a consumer gets. We help digital publishers and retailers convert that knowledge um, by selling the products while the customers are watching it. So it's a new way of monetizing video content rather than just through other forms of traditional advertising. Great. So it's a direct link from the video, but you're different in that you're not sort of sending people off, follow a link, send them to a website. Yeah, it's an interesting journey. So at the, at, at the heart of it, we, we developed a hypothesis that um, would customers be willing to buy the products that they saw inside a video. And it really started way back when we started to notice that online retailers were starting to use digital video again online. Um, But their major way of doing that was through YouTube. So they would create a video and and they'd go to a media agency and the media agency would put together a a scope. They'd then go and produce the video and it would say, for, for example, Maya might be doing the new summer collection launch. Um, and then they'd go and film this fantastic video, um, high production value, put it on YouTube, then pull it onto Maya's site um, using the YouTube link. Now, great. Obviously, video is a great way to inspire people. But the real challenge there is is that if you put a YouTube link on, nine times out of ten, they're going to go and chase cat videos rather than buy <laughs> products. Right. Get distracted. Get really distracted. Yeah. Um, And the whole point of that video, I think, and for any online retailer, is to sell products. Um, So that's where we first noticed, well, we've got to try and connect that impulse by bringing a way for the customer to buy the products that are actually being promoted inside the video. So we provided a, what we've developed is a shop window so that when on a desktop, it pops out and sitting right next to the video 
is our shop window so the products appear the moment that they appear inside the video so that the customer can then start their online buying journey while they're watching. So it's not like a pop-up as in it sort of appears over the screen. It sort of sits, what, say a third of the screen. Yeah, it's called a light box. Yeah. Essentially, that's that's what they're categorised as, as, and a lot of the traditional uh, online video players like Brightcove and and JW Player are, are building similar style solutions now, and it's done because I think it it's about making sure that the the reader and the customer stays focused on the video rather than embedding it and they can scroll past the videos so it's a way to keep them focused a bit more prominent I guess yeah. without still intruding on the the, the video content that's it. itself that's it. And, yeah. you know, look, a couple of our competitors, it's not new. We, we're categorised as shoppable video. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. So really turning the video in a shoppable format. I don't really like the term, but we get categorised with it. Yeah. Um, the reason so why I don't, don't like you? it, yeah. uh, it's got a lot to do with history. Um, so, again, it's not new. It's been around for people who have been trying to, to deliver a similar style solution since about 2012. Mm-hmm. So about five years. The real problem at the heart of it was I think most of them took a technology focus in trying to solve the problem. Um, instead of, instead of a, a retail focus. focus. Instead of like a user focus? Yeah, customer. Mean? Putting the customer at the heart. And the customer for me is two people. It's the retailer who's trying to sell the products mm. and the person who's watching the video. Win-win. It has to be for them. It has to be there at the centre. If it's not a great experience... Well, it doesn't matter how great the technology is, then consumers aren't going to use it. Yeah. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of the competitors actually overlay. They tag over the top of the video, mm. which from a marketer's point of view, I just think destroys the whole point of producing the video in the first place. Is video is there to sell a message. It's there to engage the audience. It's there to inspire. If you put any technology over the top where the consumer's focus shifts from that and they're chasing a tag around the screen just to be able to get them to buy the product, I think there's a mismatch. I think there's a, that, that system's broken. So that's why we built ours as a companion rather than as a overlay. Yeah, no, it makes sense because I haven't actually seen, other than looking at your site, I actually haven't seen a product like yours being used. I've, I've, all I've seen is the overlay stuff. However, I'm not a big shopper, so maybe that's why I'm yeah, not. Yeah, maybe. I'm not, look, I'm not it, online. It, the competitors are in the UK and the US, and I look, they, they are a little bit more advanced in that technology, the size of the markets, et cetera. And they're still there. And, and look, you know, I'm excited to have competitors in the market, to be to be honest with you. It's... It's a sign that, that, that a market's vibrant if there's multiple players in it. So we don't want to be just the only one, um, which confuses some people and investors. Um, but the reality for me is, is if, if there's only two or three players in the market, you've either got a monopoly or the market's not big. Yeah, there's not a big enough need for it. It's not big it. enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, I, um, if, I think of, um, if I think of your history, I'd like you to explain to everyone how you came sure. to this. Um, what excites me the most and the reason I got Simon on the show is because you're very much connected to bringing a result about uh, for both parties, as you said before, um, but actually being able to measure measure return on investment is uh, super, super important. If I think about the biggest gripe I know business owners have when they want to engage a marketer of any kind, uh, someone who's going to advertise or market their product for them, is that they just don't see any clear measurables. So can you give us a a background into what led you into this? Because I know when we first spoke... I could just hear the passion in your voice around what led you to this. So do you mind giving us the backstory? Yeah, of course. Um, I started my career as an accountant. Um, numbers now, man. A numbers man, yes, yes, yes. And I went really deep into numbers. I, I, I specialised in forensics. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. So I used to chase money launderers and all those sorts of people. So I had a really, really fine understanding and deep understanding of numbers and how they to work. Look for and yeah. yeah, and connecting the dots. Um, but I also then went into retail, so I spent three years in, in London and during that time I worked with Tesco, which is a big supermarket chain. I launched their, helped launch their online shopping. Hang on a second. How does someone go from forensic accountant know, to retail? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting. Oh, look, that was the exciting part about being in London at that time is, is that the opportunities that you're given um, working in a, in a big city like London, I, I was consulting, I was doing contracting like most and I right. just happened to, to luck into that project. So I was a business analyst for, for Tesco at that time Yep. and it was fascinating insight into retail and it was all about numbers and 
what was the right model to launch with. So it was all numbers driven. Um, and so for me, I th- that's why I really started to fall in love with retail as, as a science. It's the science behind it. Um, you know, I then did some more, co- you know, came back to Oz, did some more consulting and then went to the Middle East. Um, so I was over there um, helping launch a uh, real estate company and then got approached by a big Lebanese group that had 40 different retail concepts, including Zara brand. Yeah. Um, which was, again, I feel really fortunate to have been involved with Zara. They're an incredible company. Um, Can you quickly tell us the story about Mr. Ortega? I can't remember his yeah, first Mancy name. Yeah, Mansi Ortega, yeah. yeah. So he started back in 1974. He's a fascinating man. And I, I, he I, he's considers, to me, he's, he's a true visionary. Um, you know, if you go and have a look at the richest men in the world now, I think he's number four or five. Um, Jeff Bezos, I think, overtook mm-hmm. him just recently. But interesting that they're two real estate uh, um, retailers that are dominating that space now. Yeah. Um, overtaking the technologists. Um, well, it's the fast fashion. It really side of is. Things, isn't uh, so it? he he started back with one store. Where he was he was uh, um, you know didn't do anything original. Uh, he was just copying everyone's um, fashion and just reproducing it a lot quicker, and his customers loved it. Um, then through the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, he worked out that he needed to scale and he, he was approached by a mathematician um, who said to him, I've got a model for you for logistics that allow you to get consumers' products, the products into consumers a lot faster. Look, it's all about Fazara. They are not a fashion company. Of course, they sell fashion, but at the heart of it, they're not. They're a supply and logistics company. Two product, uh, two shipments every week to every store in the world of new stock. Yeah, it's amazing how it's changed in the last ten years. It's phenomenal. Mm. I saw it happen. I open up the store in Muscat and Oman, and to see it firsthand is just incredible. So their retail strategy is very much about we don't do repeats, and if we do, on the off chance that we do, it's got to be super special. Um, their model's very much around instead of doing a thousand items like traditional retailers might do, they'll do ten and only do ten of them. Whereas the traditional retailer would do a thousand and ten thousand of them. So they go deep, whereas Zara wants you to come into the store regularly. So if an item's it's there, if it's in the out. store, yeah, it's the FOMO, it's the fear <laughs> of missing out, um, and they, and it's all about creating in-store demand. So yeah, yeah, and that's again where I saw that saw numbers is vitally important. So numbers drive their business. Really, yeah. at the heart of that Zara model is is numbers. Um, just a quick um, turnaround: that four weeks it takes from the time that they see an item that they want to to create to it. To it hanging in the store. Wow, that's Four a quick weeks. turnaround. That's massive. It's it's just it's what set them apart. It's what makes Zara Zara. And there's been yeah. a couple of other companies now that are that are trying to catch up. So H and M's and and Uniqlo and and a couple of others, the top shops. Yeah. Um, but they never catch it. They'll never really catch up. Yeah. Never really catch up. So that's that that was really at the heart of it as well. When I sort of approached Pixmoto, yes, we wanted to have a great product and solve the consumer problem, but at the heart of it, it was about then. The data, you know, for me, everything is about data. The data holds the answers. That's the new digital currency. Mm, completely. Um, so we've attached to Pixmoto the product, the platform, is we provide the marketer or the publisher deep analytics about the performance of each experience. So we're able to track where they were, what device they were on, how long they watched, how many products they clicked through on, which is the vital ingredients for the return on investment. Um, Traditionally, there was no connect between the marketing spend and the e-commerce. So there was never a connection, I'm going to spend $20,000 on a video and correlate how many products did I actually sell as a result of that video. Well, it was a bit more hopeful, wasn't it? It was very much, you know, brand awareness and we're investing this much money because we're hopeful that it will drive sales, but there's no real visible connection. It was, connection. it was. And, and look, there's a lot of things that were driving that. It's, it's, I've got a lot of respect for marketers, I really do, because it's a, it's a really difficult um, skill. Um, because it's all about making sure that you do connect to the audience and building the profile and building awareness and building the connection. 
um, in today's digital environment, it should be getting easier for marketers to be able to see the connection because in a digital world you can. Yeah. In the offline world, it's really hard to measure a true return on investment of a of a TV campaign yeah. or a um, print campaign because there's just no connection into the end game of the purchase. Mm. can never be sure if there are assumptions, right? You can drive analytics around it and you can say it's engaged and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, there's no real hard metrics um, in an offline environment, in a digital it is. And that's why now everyone's talking about big data and uh, that forms part of most solutions now in a, in, a, in a software space. If you don't have the data, then it's not a complete solution in my opinion. Okay, so I've got a question, two questions for you. If you're going to, you, th- mostly the work you've been doing up to now, if I'm right, has been retail, beauty, that sort of fast fashion space where I guess there's a lot of energy. The influencers are there doing their videos and talking about products as well as businesses generating their own video content. Um, do you see that this this can be used in other businesses like service-based businesses as well? 100%. Are you doing it yet? Oh, we are actually. We've started working with a couple of service-based um, businesses. We're in early pilots for them. So we've we've been very disciplined in the way that we go about running the business. Um, we follow a very build, measure, learn mentality, which is about the startup ethos, yep. which was hammered into us when we went into Boomtown um, in our accelerated program over in the US, yes. um, which was an exciting part of the journey for us. Um, and we're moving into other verticals as well. So food's our another big one. Um, and I'm sure all of the listeners will have seen a, a food recipe video floating somewhere in their digital environment yes. on Facebook. Now you'll see a lot of them. There's a, a big one driving it from BuzzFeed called Tasty. Yes. Yep. So everyone, they're, they're massive. So those 45 second how to Sped make... up videos. Yeah. How to make the lasagna, how to make the bolognese, how to make, you yep. know, hot cross buns. Yeah. Um, they're a great fit for us and and what we're doing because there's a lot of um, opportunity to connect the supermarket. So yes, connect the ingredients, shop the ingredients. It's, it's a great innovation for us, and we're 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 about five weeks from launching that into the market as well. Exciting. It is, and look, I suppose anything um, that's around video that's sold online can be connected. So yeah. that's where we see the service-based ind- industries. Um, if you're selling an online course. If you're selling anything related to online and, and an e-commerce environment, we can connect it with video. Right. And so do you think, which one's more effective? Is it when people are generating their own video content or is it about leveraging someone else who's got the audience already like oh, Tasty? That's a really, really good question, Mel. Because really if you want to get traction in this, I would think it's probably about leveraging someone who's got the audience already. So influencers... And that's the big other big topic for marketers now. Influencer marketing is, is really on everyone's lips. Um, and for the last five years, you can see why. You know, some of the major influencers in the beauty sector are, are incredible. Mm. You know, in, in the UK, there's a there's a girl over there, Zoe Slug. Um, she started five, six, seven years ago. She's now got 15 million subscribers to her YouTube channel and she's getting 3 million views every bit of content she produces. Um, Chloe Morello here in the Australian market, she's she's getting 500,000 views and she's got 3 million followers. So the influencers are a great way to be able to, to use influence to get your brand accepted by customers. I suppose the real challenge in that space now is it's starting to get really expensive. Yeah. Um, and it's not new. Yeah. <laughs> so finding the right influencer is getting harder and harder um, because there's just so many of them now. Um so for me, I don't think it's one or the other, Mel. I don't think this is the, this is the challenge, I think, for most marketers. I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's produce your own content and work out what works. And for me, the, the, the trick is to it is don't spend too much time thinking about the content. Make the content. Make it as good as what you think it can be. Put it out there and learn. Yeah. And see how it works. See how it responds. Makes sense. And same with influencers, you, you, you know, engage in, there's some great influencer outreach platforms that are out there in the marketplace at the moment. Um, you know, go and type into Google influencer outreach programs and you'll see hundreds, 
hundreds out there and, and they're, they're relatively cheap to use and you can start to make contact with those influencers directly and it's a trial and error. I don't think there's a perfection. Perfection's over the long term. You can't expect to go into that style of video marketing and have overnight success. I think it's a long game. And so how often, so give us a little bit of insight into how long and how sure. often and all those sort of things. Oh, look, it all depends what vertical you're in. In the beauty and cosmetic space at the moment, anything over 45 seconds, we're seeing dramatic drop-off rates in engagement. But surely for a beauty video where someone's demonstrating, yep. you know, for instance, you know, those sort of things you've got to, or let's say a product that you've got, a technological product, you need to explain its value, its features, exactly. its benefits. So that's a bit hard. So it is. So so that's that's where, so the owned media is the 45 second. If you go onto the influencers on YouTube, they'll be anywhere between six and 12 minutes long. Yeah, wow. It is. Yeah, I don't see. I don't consume those things. So, so I'm oh, I'm, I'm not in that space. I've, but I I've, do know. I do know that they've just got huge followings and people just everywhere. watch no end. Well, that's the the YouTube army. It's the generation. Yeah. This genera- next generation, the millennials. That's all. That's where they're consuming. That's where they're learning. That's where they're 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 getting to to understand the world really. Um, and if you're not there, you're missing out. Um, in terms of a level of engagement and it's not a be all and end or in my opinion it needs to be everywhere you've got to be doing unfortunately a digital environment you've got to be everywhere so it's not one or the other it's not Facebook or Snapchat Snapchat it's not YouTube or, or Vimeo it's unfortunately working out what best works for you and your customers and your readers so where where those people are and what they're using yeah. yeah, pretty much. And so do you put the same video content on those different platforms or do you mix it up or what's Ag- your... Again, it's a little bit of trial and error. Yeah. You know, if you go and have a look on the Facebook um, style of videos now, we're seeing a lot of Facebook Live. So that's starting to take hold. Um, but again, I think it's about user behaviours on Facebook. Everyone uses it in a different way. Um, but f- most, I think, are using it as a, as a scroll-type environment. So that's why I think a lot of the videos are now only... Uh, they're getting shorter and shorter in terms of that, those videos because consumers don't have the same attention span as they had four, three, four, five years ago on Facebook. Yeah, it's interesting because Facebook, if you're trying to put a video up there that you want to promote, it's got to sit 15 seconds or less. So they're actually, I guess, helping you by putting those parameters on it because it's about getting people's attention and then getting them 100% to take through the next funnel. step. They get paid though too, right? So as that's soon right. as <laughs> you've got 15 seconds to capture them and as soon as they click for more, if you created that intrigue, Facebook that's gets right. paid, which of course they should. They're providing them the, uh, the platform to do it. Look, I, I, I really do. It's an interesting um, challenge for us because we, for Pixmoto, we don't, we don't activate on Facebook and um, YouTube um, and it's a difficult question that we need to ask uh, that we need to provide an answer for is because people say well we're there so Google and Facebook now take up 80 to 85% of digital advertising spend in, in the world yeah it's huge it's massive mm. you know so they're massive players and it's causing a lot of problems for the traditional re- uh, publishers um, of the world um, because they're struggling to actually bring advertisers to monetize their eyeballs yes. um, that they've got on their publications. Um, so it's a real challenge for, for them. But um, the reality is, is about Facebook and reach is it's getting harder and harder to actually reach those customers because everyone's there. Yes. And it's getting more expensive for you to actually capture that audience. Um, and both of those two big groups of faced a lot of criticisms over the last 18 months um, about their metrics and what they do use to be able to track performance um, and on YouTube about where my advertising is going. Yeah. Google so got was, in trouble recently. For oh, they're in, so they're in big trouble in mm. Europe as well. And they'll, they'll respond. They'll, 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 they'll fix the problems, but it'll just take a little bit longer because they're so big, making any changes just takes a lot longer to, to, to get done. Mm, of course, of course. You mentioned before about where Pixmoto works. So you said very suitable for the mobile. Actually, this was actually, I should (laughs) explain, we were talking earlier and we were talking about where Pixmoto was used and you mentioned it could be used on PC. Of course, mobile is super important for people who are looking to to sell anything. So where, where does it work? We we went down. Of, um, obviously, we want to try and work with advertisers and publishers. So so when I call advertisers, I'm used to 
the, the US people call them advertisers, we call them brands yes. out here in Oz. Um, we got great traction on a publishing side um, because the publishers as well are, are facing a, a bit of a challenge. As we said before about Facebook and, and Google, they're, they're taking a lot of the di- digital advertising. So the traditional publishers have got to come up with new innovations. Um, so we did some trials with News Corp here in Australia last year and, and fortunately we, we earlier this year was appointed a, a, as their preferred partner in the shoppable video space. Um, so they're, they're using Pixmoto in a, in a really clever way that they're providing a differentiation to Facebook and, and Google to say, if you want to actually see how your video's really performing in our environments, we'll, we will allow you to do that using Pixmoto and we'll also be just something more than a way to distribute your video content. We're going to help you sell products by driving our readers back to your sites to buy your products so there's a new revenue stream that that news corp and the digital publishers are getting by using pixmoto to help publish them inside their articles right because the issue people have in terms of watching or looking at those sites is that they go oh the ads are interrupting but of course someone's got to pay for the people who are creating that content you're you're going there because you want to consume their content so how is it then that Pixmoto is able to make that usable for, sure. or, or, or friendly enough for the sure. reader? So we, we went, again, it was a very, very um, uh, dis- considered approach. We went, we went natively. So to, to, to sort of break down what natively means is the video is played without any ads. So we put it inside the article in a native environment. So it's not um, exposed to any pre-roll ads. Um, which is what the traditional model has been is watch a video. If you want to watch that video, then you've got to watch two or three pre-roll ads over the top of that video content, which is great. It's fine. Sometimes, you know, that's that, that model works. Um, but for us, for example, the, the, the best execution is um, talking about seven items that might be in your beauty items that might be in your, in your bag. So that article will be written and Pixmoto will sit at the top of that video content to, to add additional value to the written content as the video player. So what people can either choose to go into the video yep, or, or, read read the, the article. or read the article. Yep. And so how's that working out? Is it, Are people opting for the video over the It's inter- the It's written? really interesting. It's about a 50-50. Um, and I think it's over time. Again, it's a it's a it's a something that we've got to master over time. Um, we were surprised by the 50-50 because I just didn't know um, what the – I thought it was going to be lower, to be honest. Which but way did you think it would we be We thought we weren't going to get as higher engagement. But we think that may have been because there are no pre-roll ads. Right. So does it auto-play? Or no, you've actually you've got to... no. We decided to 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 not make it autoplay. Okay. Again, because I think people are pretty tuned to seeing autoplay, and I think it annoys them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it I really have is. The choice. Yeah, it is. And look, the other reason for going natively is we're seeing a massive rise of ad blockers being used over in the world. Um, Australia hasn't really been subjected to it too much, but in the US. Um, those ad blocking usage rates are absolutely climbing. So, so it's, it, they're approaching 50%. So that means any of those pre-roll ads are going to be blocked. Yeah. So it's a real problem. It is. It's a real problem for the traditional publishers trying to actually generate that revenue through the pre-roll ads. So this way the reader gets a choice. They can engage if they're opting in by pressing the it's play It's all button. about choice. Yeah. You know, at the heart of what we do in all of our design is what will the consumer think? How will the consumer react if we do X? And we put a lot of time in testing it with user groups to be able to, because they're all hypotheses at the end of the day. Um, data tells us the story. You know, we're able to see through consumer behavior what they thought of a, a, a new feature. Um, rather than guessing, yeah. we, we build a hypothesis, put it out there, and we see what happens. And so I guess for the, the News Corp, different types of publications would have different I guess different readers readers are are going to be different from one product to the other. And I think that's also a little bit of history as well. So readers are tied, for example, News Corp owns Vogue in Australia. So the Vogue readers will be a very different proposition to some of the newer players in the market 
like News Corp's news recently re- uh, released, women.com.au. Um, so they're going to be different personas, different customers, different behaviours, different histories with the article and the content and style. So it's a long tail. It's really a long-term approach that yeah. we're taking with, with the solution and with our partners. So before I asked you around timeframes, um, what sort of time frame do you give before you change? Do you Is it literally about assessing every single piece of content you put out and then look for where the correlation is in when people are dropping off or what they're yeah, not doing? Yeah, it or? was. Up till now, it's very much been, been that process. So to be able to... The more, at the heart of it comes that the more sample, larger sample size you've got, the easier the data gets yeah. to understand. And most of the time, the answers will appear. Um, you've got to look for them. They're not going to just automatically pop up. You say this, you've got to analyse the data and be able to understand really what you're looking for in the data. And I think that's the major trick for a lot of people is they think the data is just the answers are going to appear. Right. So on the back end of Pixmoto, if I buy or I engage your services, is there a dashboard that actually yeah, shows dashboard. the analytics? So how yeah. does that become then easier? What what do you guys we've, do to make it easier We've actually put it into a, to a um, all of the data is actually then represented in graphical format, um, and then we provide commentary for our clients as to what the data might mean. Right. So we don't just leave them on their own to say, you know, it's, e- it's easy to see. They'll see visually that the content had a ninety, a hundred percent engagement. Fifty um, percent of the people got to the end. Right. Um, but they won't know the drop-off between 70 and 90 why that occurred. So we'll help them dig into that data to see, okay, well, was there a change in the style of the content at minute 27 when that happened? So we you guys do, do that? Yeah, we go and help them with that process. Right. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That's excellent. Because it's learning and we've got to educate. So for us, again, it's about a partnership. For us, we don't want to just sit there as a technology solution. That's, here you go, go and play with it. So it's very human. So there is a human element to it or is it There's AI? There's very much a human a element. There has to be in today's world. It's one. It's something that's, that's, that's also, I've had a real, not, I, I suppose not problem, but the, the growth of, of SaaS products mm-hmm. over the last five years, software as a service companies, has all been about that. Has been about we've got to scale. We've got to build this product, get users on board, give them a fourteen-day trial, and hopefully then convert them. Yeah. Low touch point, great way to scale. The real problem I find with that is is it doesn't have a human touch. You know, we are humans. I'm dealing with someone who buys my product is a human. So I've got to help understand get them to understand what this product really means. Over time, yes, there'll be less human touch points, but I think that builds trust. I think that builds rapport. I think it builds a lot of those lost art forms in you know, building business relationships. Is It's not about the product, it's about the people yeah. behind the product. Yeah. Um, over time, you know, do my investors tell me, mate, that can't scale? Of course. Um, and it's something that, that has – we're finding the right balance in now is that, that sometimes we can over-service yep. because people, some people's learning behaviours are different. Some people actually prefer to just be left alone and do it on their own. Um, but for the, for the time being, it's about hand-holding. Yeah. It's about education. It's about building that trust and rapport with our customers. Yeah, I like it. I like that you're being very involved in the process because it's going to help your business grow, right? As you discover Hopefully, and learn. Hopefully, <laughs> Of course it will. Of course it will. So how big's your team then? How many people have you got? If you've got all these people providing this insight and helping people analyze yep. the data yep. and giving recommendations essentially, how uh, do you do it? W- well, at the moment, I'm really, again, I, I must have done something right in a past life if, if people out there believe in past life. Um, the, fa- the other founder, Rick Boykin, he's our chief technology officer. Um, he started his career with NASA, um, then moved on to Boeing, and then moved on to Microsoft. Yeah, smart cookies, you yeah. two, between the two of you. So, so whenever whenever I go into meetings and say it's not rocket scientist, science, well, I can actually <laughs> say, well, we've got one of them. Um, so that's exciting. It's it, and, and Rick's been a powerhouse in, in getting stuff done. And we're not young entrepreneurs. Um, 
Rick and I are, are of the older generation, Mel. Oh, I don't know about that. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I think that's helped us in our revolution. I think it really has helped us getting to the business to where it is today because of our experience, our corporate experience. We've sort of been able to, you know, sidestep a lot of the mistakes that a lot of sort of younger entrepreneurs might make, which is fine. Everyone's got to make mistakes. That's the way you learn. Yeah. Um, fortunately for us, Rick and I have, I've hopefully accelerated faster. Um, we've got a great support team that we have in his technical world. Um, so they're on call. We don't bring them on as employees. Um, yeah, as and that's required. Just, yeah, as and as required. And then we've got a couple of other people here in Brisbane um, helping us with the UX uh, user experience and user interface design. Um, and then I'm doing a lot of the front-facing to clients at the, for the time being. Yeah. Um, uh, but we are looking at bringing on new people at the moment. We're fundraising and we're bringing some more money in to help me, you know, build that customer relationship. Good stuff. Side of the business. You've got some Australian businesses on board. Can you share some, yeah, some of those do, with yeah. us? Yeah, we do, yeah. Yeah, so, so News Corp was one of our, our founding clients and, you know, it was a great experience to go through with, with News Corp. We are really lucky that we, we stuck out. We did 12 months of testing with them. Um, and again, I think it's right timing. Timing for me is everything in business. It's um, you can be too early and or too late. You know, the best businesses are at or around the right time, and I think that's where we are. Um, and News Corp's been great for us. We we you know now activating across their whole network, and we've got a couple of campaigns that are coming up shortly. Um, that are going to be really exciting for us moving into the entertainment space. Their network is what give us an explanation oh, it's of who's massive. involved. It's really, really Some massive, and it was surprising to me to, to really get to understand how deep News Corp's tentacles are. Um, so they're not, of course, they've got their traditional mastheads. You know, their Metro magazines, mm-hmm. your Courier Mail's, the Australians, etc. Well, they've also got a lot of other digital magazines. So they own Vogue yep. in Australia. They've got a, a, a digital magazine called Bureau Two Four Seven. Um, they, they own Taste.com.au, mm-hmm. which is massive. That's now Australia's largest food. Recipe publication. Very visible online. Very visible on Kidspot. Um, Delicious magazine, all recipes. So they're very diversified. Really, yeah. Brands that people would be, and publications people would be familiar with, but not really understand that it's part of the News Corp network. Yeah. So for us, there's there's massive opportunity. You know, that's that's generated other interest for us in the US. So we've just finished a, a pilot program with a big US publisher called purewow.com. Mm-hmm. They're a women's lifestyle publication over in the US. Um, and we're getting inquiries every day now from advertisers about how they can use it. So, you know, we're really starting to grow pretty quickly. Yeah. No, well, with big clients like that on board, um, I expect that there's good things in the future. So what about for anyone who's out there listening – can anyone access Pixmoto, is, uh, or is it specifically we, for that those big businesses that have got all those arms to them that are that have got those big budgets? Uh, look, the, the the simple answer is it's for everyone. Um, we've got three three actual products in the market: Pixmoto Prime, which is aimed more at our our sort of entry level style of customer or advertiser. Then we've got a Pixmoto Prime and an Elite, um, and we did that to be able to diversify in the market. So what's the base level? The base level's pr- prime, and that's prime. our first product that we put into the market. And it is essentially a one product, one click. So there's no um, buyer journey analysis. It's really the product appears, there's a call to action button buy now, and that, that person goes to that product page. Right. The prime is all about providing a wish list area um, so that the product's added to a wish list while they're watching the video, then they see more product information during the experience before they buy. And then the elites are full customization of the experience to be able to build it to brand guidelines. Right. So look, the Prime's a great way for service businesses. The Prime's going to be perfect and ideal for the service businesses because it's about generating that click from the video to a particular service offering. So we've, we're online. Um, there is a way to sign up. Yep. Um, w- we took a automated trial period off for the reasons I talked about earlier. Yeah. Is it's all about high service. We want to understand what be what people are trying to get out of the video experience before handing over the the keys to the car. 
Yeah, fantastic. So if I wanted to explain to people how we do online courses and how we've got that turnkey solution, I could actually go and do that 100%. now if I wanted to. 100%. Oh, okay, I'm going to go check it out. And it's really, it's it's quite easy. So we built the platform so, so it would be not cutting into time because time's really important for, for service for everyone you know sure. so so to create and turn a, a a one minute video around that say it has four products in it will take 15 minutes sounds good from creation through to distribution okay so i, I guess the biggest thing that I, I guess when we first initially spoke was around how much you're you're passionate about making sure there's that strong correlation between spend and spend and and, uh, and seeing how it's working for you what what do you think your biggest learning has been um, in the process, you know, especially working with these big businesses. Yeah, it's it is well we've learned lots, which I love. You know, I want to keep learning. You know, that's the that's the fascination for me about business is you never stop. You know, and if you stop, well then you should stop the business. Well, you lost your passion then, haven't yeah. you? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and the biggest learning I suppose from from a marketing perspective is. A lot of marketers are still very conditioned into the traditional way of thinking about performance. So a lot of them are still got their eyes focused on engagement and uplift and brand connection rather than the true metrics of how did it sell? Did it, did it, what is the direct correlation between your marketing spend and how many products it sold? So really reflecting back properly, analysing it. Embracing the new way of, of analytics. And I think there's fear around it, Mel. And I get the fear. I understand sometimes numbers can be scary. Um, is it fear or is it just we sort of expect that when those analytics are there, that gives us the answer and whatever we can see is what we act on straight away? I, I think there's a bit of that. I, I do. I think, I, I think um, because everyone talks about data, that everyone's producing data. But data in itself, without any correlation to another past event or future event, mm. for me, I just don't think they hold any value. Um, but I think it's really letting go of of past and embracing today and future in terms of what, in a digital environment, you can see around performance and embracing it. Um, you know, the, the term return on investment means so many things to so many different people. There's no standard metric to determine return on investment. Um, but we're getting closer and closer in a digital environment to defining that, I think. Yeah. And biggest learning? Um, patience. Mm. Change takes a long time, you know, and there is that fear of, of and again, maybe fear is not the word, reluctance, um, Behaviors are, are people. People like doing the same thing um, if they think it's working. So patience is is really hard. When when t- three years ago I started to tell people that um, eventually you'll be able to actually check out while you're watching the video, purchase the product, not click through. I used to get glazed eyes. People would look at me and say, Are "You kidding? That's never going to happen." Really? Yeah. So patience and belief are the two two key skills, I suppose, about any journey in in change yeah. you've got to keep believing in yourself um, but that takes patience mm. I think that's probably your biggest learning for me in business as well is patience especially when you're trying new avenues of things is it's very easy to sort of give three or four months of something and go well I've given that a hard yeah. whack uh, no I need to shift focus and it can <coughs> be easy to become I guess distracted by what you perceive is working out there in the marketplace especially when you look to your competitors so Patience. It took us 12 months from the time we started to talk to News Corp. Actually, 15 months before from the first conversation till we signed the first contract. Yeah. So, you know, a belief in that it works. And fortunately, we had the numbers underneath that we could see that it was working. But belief in that that what's your, what you're trying to solve is a problem, is a problem. That's the other one. Um, and, and people are going to come and tell you differently they're going to try and come and tell you that no that won't work or no this is the the right way to do it or this is the the way you should be moving and and you'll get that over and over and over and over and over again and that's great always listen to those people 
But if it if in the heart of it you still believe that you're doing the right thing, push on. Yeah. I, I just find it unfathomable that people would think that that wouldn't work. Your well, concept wouldn't well, work. Well, I, I suppose it was also around the time, Mel, where YouTube was just taking off. Yeah. And so when I told them, well, then eventually people are going to come off YouTube and want to actually look at video content in other environments other than just YouTube to want to buy the product, that's where I think people start to think YouTube's going to live on forever mm. and no one's going to come and knock it off and it's no one's going to offer anything different. We don't know what's around the corner. Digital, digital and technology are moving so fast in today's world. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't even have the iPhone. That's right. It's easy. It's very hard to sort of even look back a year ago and think to really see the changes that the have been made. The so. speed which technology is moving in today's world, you've got to get in and strike while the iron's hot and, and you've got very small windows now to make something a success. Yeah. So, so where does that, so when that patient side of things, how do you manage that then? It is, that's, that's why I said patience and it immediately jumped to my mind is it is hard because you, in the back of my mind, you know, having been in the game for nearly 20 years, I've seen the time for, I suppose, if I broke them up in five year gaps, the last five years is is just dwarfing the amount of speed it was in the last 15. Mm. So there, there's a little bit of fear that creeps in internally as well is, wow, is this, is it, am I, is it going to work? Is it going to turn? Is it going to, to arrive? Um, you've just got to keep believing. And look out and be realistic, I suppose. I, because I, I've, I've got a very analytical style of brain, I'm always looking and analysing what's going on in the market. So I didn't put my blinkers on. I always make sure that I'm looking outside to see what's happening in the market and look for the signals and the triggers. And fortunately, I've had those appear over the last two years to keep me motivated that we are moving in the right direction. Mm. Um, so I suppose that's the other advice is, is even if you believe... Um, that that you've got the best. Make sure you don't put the blinkers on. Make sure you're always attuned to what's happening into the marketplace, because that's where the answers are. The market will tell you. The market's honest. It'll honestly tell you whether that whether that your your piece of technology, your service, or skill, or anything that's driving your business, the answers will be out there in the marketplace. Just got to stay focused, though. Stay focused, yeah. Don't of be disheartened. No, and it's a balance. It's a real balancing act, Mel. It really is. And I suppose the other one is to make sure you get some good people around you, some advisors. The advisors that we've got are incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got five on an advisory board who, who I, I couldn't have done it without them. They've they've really been my sounding board, my motivator, my everything you know so so that that would be something else i'd also encourage don't do it alone yeah um always have someone else who you can bounce ideas or or express your fears out um, of interest how often are you doing that how often do you I do it once a month board? once a month mm. yeah so and they're all around the world i've got three in the in the u.s and two here so you know it's 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 challenging but we get you know technology today we jump on skype yeah um and it's a disciplined hour you know, we lock it in. It's the same day every month, um, and and people don't miss it. You know, so if you lock it in, and and we talk about everything, and there's an agenda and all those things that you would expect in a normal meeting. Sometimes it can go right off course. You know, that's that's the exciting part for me is that um, I don't try and shape those conversations too much. I'm all about listening to yeah. to, to the advice, and that's sometimes also very hard for entrepreneurs and or business owners because. There is that focus and passion and belief. Being open to also listening at the same time is it's a real sometimes. skill. Yeah, it it's is. a real hard skill. So when you pick your advisory, what sort of industries are they in to give you that, I guess, that spectrum of knowledge and wisdom and insight? Well, well, for me, it started in those areas that I thought I had was the weakest in. Okay. So your numbers are covered? Numbers were covered. <laughs> um, retail was covered. Um, didn't know a lot about media, so I brought in a, a, a guy who's worked in media for 15 years. Um, we've got a lawyer on the board, yep. which I think Good to have. everyone should ha- should have. Um, then we've got we do have another account, but he's also similar. He 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 used his accounting skill in a, in a media and technology space. Um, and our last is a guy who's who's been in publishing. 
fantastic. Covered all bases. Yeah, and it's it's that that it's a very fluid board. Um, I'm looking to bring someone else on now mm-hmm. um, because I think there's one more school that we've we've missed. Mm-hmm. So who's got an international expansion experience, yeah. taking companies in internationally into Asia? So that's our next focus. Is Asia's just an incredible market, but really challenging trying to break into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Super, super competitive. Oh, it's, it's it's brilliant. I look at China is for me the one that's going to take over. Um, you know, and and Southeast Asia into Singapore and and Hong Kong. You know, Singapore is a is a real hub for technology startups. Yes, um, and a great city to go to too. Yeah, yeah, good excuse to get there. <laughs> yeah. So, Simon, if anyone wants to find out more about what you do at Pixmoto, where sure. can they find you? Where can they follow yep. you? Um, look, it's pretty easy. Pixmoto, uh, www.pixmoto.com. Um, and you, you can contact me there and or find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and all those normal places. Fantastic. Simon, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Great to hear about what you do with Pixmoto, the work that, well, I guess the knowledge that you've acquired in the last few years and the, the changes that you've been through. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mel. Thanks for tuning in to our very first interview on monetizing knowledge. My name's Mel Telesekin. If you've enjoyed today's show and you have an inkling that you're going to enjoy the rest of them, then make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. That way you'll make sure that you get alerts and all of those will be loaded up for you as you're ready to consume them. Tomorrow or the next episode coming up, we've actually got Tice Cobb. Tice is the managing marketing the marketing manager for Business Depot. Business Depot is a highly successful accounting firm. They don't like to be called an accounting firm, but accounting business, business advisory. They've extended out to legal departments as well as marketing, and they're actually making themselves quite the business hub for their the businesses they have and the businesses that they're bringing on into the this sort of one-stop shop situation. He's going to talk to us about how they use events to actually do that, to build community, to build connections and networks and drive new, uh, new clientele. Uh, they run breakfast events. They run uh, live events of evenings uh, on small and large scale. So it's really worth tuning into Tice. He gives us those insights into what works, what doesn't, all those discoveries. So hope you enjoy that. Until next episode, have a great week. This episode is brought to you by me and my team at Course 9, helping book authors, speakers and thought leaders reach a global audience and develop an extra revenue stream along the way. How? Through the development of online courses and membership sites. Course 9 is the end-to-end solution to get your course content planned, filmed, uploaded and live in 12 weeks, regardless of where you are in the world. At Course 9, we help our clients in one of two ways. One, to better put to use their existing content and build upon it with a compelling script and educational resource or we help them unpack their knowledge, their wisdom experience, get it out of their head and into an engaging online course format that can benefit a far-reaching audience. So exchange the one-to-one or the limited reach for a plan to monetize your method, your knowledge, your experience with a product that is made once and is ready for distribution on a global scale. Go to course9.com. That's course with a number 9.com.